You are listening to the Grace Church of Mapton podcast. This week's sermon by Pastor Adam Copenhaver covers 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 16. Thanks for listening. All right, thank you, Paul, for reading our passage for us. We're continuing today in our series in 1 Corinthians, Extreme Makeover Church Edition. And we've been seeing week after week in this letter from the Apostle Paul how he is addressing what were major problems in the church in Corinth. And we've been seeing some really kind of horrifying scandals that were taking place in the church. Things like incest, Christians suing one another in the church, prostitution, really awful things. And we've seen Paul use this very strong language to rebuke the church in Corinth, saying things like, how dare you? How could you? Why would you think this? Don't you know? And so we've been saying each week, it's kind of like we come here and we read a passage, and it's like we get a slap in the face from the Apostle Paul, a bit of a wake-up call that he's giving to the church in Corinth and also to us. Now, that context of Paul's tone, his rebuking, and so on, is important for us to remember today as we enter into chapter 7 now. Chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians is a long chapter. It's a very important chapter in Scripture because this is the longest discussion we find in Scripture about marriage, and not just about marriage, but about some of the particular nuances of singleness and also of divorce and of remarriage. So it's a very important chapter, very practical and applicable to our lives. But the first thing I want to point out, even before we start working through the chapter, is how Paul's tone changes in this chapter. If you've been following along, chapters 5 and 6, these strong rebukes, and even before that, chapters 1, 2, and 3, here in chapter 7, Paul lays off the strong rebukes. He's going to give firm principles, we'll see, but he also, throughout this chapter, he's recognizing that life is very messy. Life is messy. A lot of things happen in life. A lot of things go wrong. And sometimes the best way forward is not always 100% clear. And sometimes God even puts different Christians on different paths. It's not always the kind of thing where it's like, hey, everyone ought to agree and go the same way here. No prostitution. That's obvious. Chapter 6. Chapter 7, things get a little more complicated. And so I want to say a few things before we enter into chapter 7, and we'll work on chapter 7 today and also next week. But here's a couple things just to preface this before we get into it. First, we need to realize that chapter 7 has a lot of difficult challenges in interpretation. It's not always 100% clear exactly what Paul himself is saying in some of the nuances throughout chapter 7, and really good Bible interpreters will disagree sometimes on what they think Paul is saying. So it's a challenging chapter on that level. It's also a challenging chapter because it's not always immediately clear how what Paul is saying here applies to our personal lives. Again, life life is complicated. Life gets messy. Our personal situations and the nuances of our personal situations 
are often complex and difficult to sift through. And so it can be hard to know how exactly does this apply to me and my situation. That takes a lot of discernment, a lot of Christian wisdom. And both of those things, the challenges of interpreting this text, the challenge of how does it apply to me and my situation, both of those actually are far deeper, harder things to wade through than just what I can do in one sermon. Okay, so that goes beyond one sermon. But then also I want to say too that anytime we work through a passage like this, we also need to remind ourselves up front and throughout of the importance of God's grace. The importance of God's grace. We work through something like this and for some of us, all of us in one way or another really, we have some kind of mistakes in our past. Some kind of brokenness. The places we can look at and realize, I think that I've messed up here or there or somewhere, maybe in small ways, maybe in big ways. And so it's always important to remember God's grace, that God's grace is with us and for us today, that when we trust in Christ, he doesn't hold our sins against us, and that includes those sins and failures and so on in the context of marriage that we'll be talking about here. So those are things just to, to hold in mind and to remember as we work the, through this passage. The passage is hard. It's a difficult passage to interpret. Life is messy. It's not always easy to apply and figure out what it means for our own lives and our situations. But God is gracious. And he's gracious to us. Okay, so we can hold on to those things and also be gracious to the preacher who's trying his best to get us through a difficult passage today. I'm like, we'll be the jury on that. Yeah, we'll let you know at the end. Okay, well, here's our outline for today in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First, we'll talk about the gift of marriage and what Paul says about marriage here in the opening verses. Then second, we'll talk about the gift of singleness and what Paul says about singleness. And then third, we'll look at faithfulness in marriage. What does it mean to be faithful in marriage? And we'll see Paul wade into a particular situation and wrestle with how this applies in a messy situation. Okay, so first, the gift of marriage in verses 1 through 5. Okay, so we start in verse 1, and here's what Paul says, verse 1 of chapter 7. He refers here, he says, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then he quotes from the Corinthians here, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you were here for last week's message, or if you've read chapter 6, this might be a shocking thing to hear that some of the Corinthians were saying this, because back in the second part of chapter 6 last week, we saw that there were people in the Corinthian church apparently visiting prostitutes, and they were justifying it, saying that as Christians, we are free. We are free to live however we want to to pursue our sexual desires in whatever way we want to. Now that's apparently what some of the Corinthians at least were saying back in chapter 6. Now in chapter 7 verse 1 we have the pendulum swinging all the way to the other side and there were other Christians apparently in the church in Corinth saying the opposite. Actually what God wants from us is for us to never have sexual relations just a blanket ban across the board. It's no good. 
Don't do it ever in any context, in any way, shape, or form with anybody in any situation. And so Paul is going to now respond to the other side and say, well, that's not quite what God has in mind. Okay, so here's, here's what Paul says in response. And now we'll read verses 2 through 5 again, Paul's response, and then we'll, we'll talk through this. Okay, so here's what Paul says again, verse 2, in response to this. Paul says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here's the Corinthians. They're looking at, some of these Christians at least, looking at all the sexual immorality around them and saying Christians ought to just be abstinent, period. And Paul, in response to this, says, well, Almost like you're close, but not quite. Because God actually is the one who created sexual relations, made us sexual beings, but God also created marriage. And within marriage, between a husband and a wife, joined together in the covenant of marriage, within marriage, sexual relations are actually good, Paul says. And so a husband and wife within marriage should not keep themselves from one another. That's not pleasing to God. In fact, Paul seems to suggest that if they were to do that, it would only lead to more temptation. It would lead to unfaithfulness in marriage. So instead, Paul says, here's how the marriage relationship ought to work. And he says something very fascinating about marriage. He describes marriage in these verses as a mutual relationship where the husband and wife's bodies belong to one another and they have authority over one another and they give to each other what is translated here, their conjugal rights. This is mutuality in marriage that Paul's describing it's, it's humility. It's being centered around not myself, but around my spouse. It's not about me demanding from my spouse my rights, what you owe me. I'm going to get what I want. This is humility and giving where I put my spouse before myself. I give of myself to my spouse to serve my spouse, to love my spouse, to care for them where they are at the center where their interests are above my own, and my spouse does the same for me. That's the, the mutuality part. And this mutuality that Paul describes, it's, it's a little shocking perhaps to hear that for us today. It would have been very radical back in Paul's day in, in Corinth in the first century to hear Paul describe this. This was, this was a patriarchal culture at that time, where the man is the head of the household and the wife is his property. The wife belongs to him. The man has authority to make demands 
of his wife. The wife has no authority over the husband in the first century. And what does Paul say? Toss that aside. It's mutual. Both belong to each other. I mean, he is elevating women in a shocking way in this passage. Elevating the wife here in a shocking way that they both belong to each other, including the husband to his wife. The authority is mutual. Not just the husband having authority over his wife, but the husband also being under his wife's authority, who has authority over him. And within this mutual relationship, Paul says, sexual relations are part of the picture. If you're going to abstain from sexual relations, Paul, Paul says, I mean, you can kind of almost hear Paul's tone when he addresses this in verse 5. If you're going to deprive one another, Paul says, well, it better be by mutual consent. Not one person lording it over the other. It's mutual consent. It better be just for a short time, lest temptation come rolling in. And then Paul throws in in verse 6, which really kind of goes with these verses. He says, I'm saying this not as a command that you must deprive one another for a short time. It's a concession. If you really want to insist on doing that, Paul says, okay, I'll allow it. But mutual consent, short time, it's not really the best thing for you and for your marriage. So Paul is holding up marriage here, elevating it. And within marriage, sexual relations within marriage as good things. In verse 7, Paul will use the language of a gift from God as he transitions to singleness to say God gives a gift, one gift to one person, another gift to another person, one this kind of gift, one that kind of gift. And marriage is a gift from God. It's a good thing. And we as Christians should work together with our spouse in a mutual way to have the best, most healthy marriage possible, where we are each focused on serving the other, giving of ourselves to the other, and Paul's point here, that includes sexually. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift from God. And as you know, we all know, our world today increasingly does not value marriage in the way that our Christian faith values marriage. I think it was this past week, maybe it was the week before, I came across an article, and maybe you saw this article too, it was a headline, it was kind of a clickbait thing, but it got my attention, I clicked on it. It was a headline about things that the baby boomer generation valued. You know, so if you're like retirement age or older, these were things that you, you valued in your world that are now obsolete for millennials, which is like people younger than me, okay? Things that used to be things for the older generation that are now obsolete. And so it kind of rolled through and it had a list of things, things like landline telephones. Okay, if you were a certain generation, you remember landline, maybe even party lines on your telephone, right? But now, who in their 20s has a landline? Or cable TV. You know, maybe you had cable TV. Now it's all streaming for the younger generation. Writing in cursive. Now there's a dying art, right? Um, some of you maybe, okay, writing in cursive. Things that are now obsolete. When I clicked on that article, 
had all these things ordered, first thing in the list, number one, what is obsolete for millennials? Marriage. Even before landlines, cable TV, and so on, marriage, it said, is obsolete. In this world of freedom, sexual freedom, where there's so few morals or restraints, who needs marriage? And that's what this article had a paragraph or so describing this. You're free sexually. Just have relations with your boyfriend or girlfriend if you want to. Move in together. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, move out. Have a baby together. Why not? No marriage necessary. Who needs to be tied down by that old-fashioned ball and chain? Who wants the hassle of a marriage covenant together? Well, there's a lot of problems with that article. (laughs) One of them being, who said that marriage was just something that was born in like the baby boomer generation? The 50s and 60s. This is something God created thousands of years ago, Genesis chapter 2. It's a good thing. It's a gift from God. It's the place where sexual relations are good and honoring to God. And so Paul is elevating marriage. Don't downplay it, Paul says. It's anything but obsolete for us as Christians. Okay, so that's the gift of marriage. That's good and great for us who are married folks. But what about single people? Well, next we have a couple of verses here where Paul speaks about the gift of singleness. So this is our second point now. In verses 6 through 9, here the gift of singleness. So now Paul makes this transition from marriage to singleness. Verse 6 is a concession, not as a command, I say this. Verse 7, I wish that all were as I am. Paul says. Again, note the tone. He's not giving a command. He's just expressing a sentiment. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. And then Paul explains what does he mean by this gift? Well, verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. That's in verse 8. And so Paul says, if you are not married today, for whatever reason, however it is that you came to be single today, whether you were never married or you were married and you're not married anymore, Paul says, your singleness today is a gift from God, and it is good. It is good for you to remain single Now, he doesn't explain right here in this verse why is it good to be single. But later in the chapter, in verses 32, 33, 34, Paul will flesh this out a little bit. And he'll point out that, you know, those married people, their interests are divided. They they want to serve the Lord, and they do serve the Lord, but they're also in a relationship with their spouse, where their spouse has authority over them and they give of themselves to their spouse, their interests are also aligned with serving their spouse. And that's pleasing to God when you serve your spouse, but there's a reality there, Paul says, of how a married person is divided in their interests. But a single person, Paul says, what an opportunity. 
to be focused and locked in on the interests of the Lord Jesus and to serve Jesus in a special way that just doesn't quite work for married folks. And that's what Paul fleshes out in verses 32, 33, 34. This is why it's good, Paul will say, preferable in Paul's opinion, not a command, an opinion, to be single. Now we think about Paul, his own life. We've been going through the life of Paul and cultivate on Wednesday night in the book of Acts and how Paul was living and what kinds of things have we seen Paul doing? He's traveling from city to city, preaching the gospel. He rarely stays in one place for very long because he always manages to get in trouble in these cities. He's getting arrested. He's getting beat up and thrown out of cities. And if you think about the life of Paul, the way that he served the Lord is a very hard kind of life and ministry for a person to have if you're married. If Paul had a wife back home worried about him, or since Paul seems to say, don't deprive one another, all that, Paul probably would have brought his wife with him. And who wants to take a wife along whom you're responsible for when you're getting beat up and thrown out of cities and arrested? And so Paul's looking at himself and saying, my singleness is actually a gift from God it's an opportunity for me to serve the Lord in unique ways. I was thinking as I was working on this passage over the past week, I was thinking about all of the different single Christians I have known through the years and all the ways they have blessed so many people. And the list is way too long for me to go through in, in a message like this, but Many years ago, I met an elderly lady who had spent, she never married, and she spent her entire life, well into her 80s, serving as a missionary to children and families on the Navajo reservation. And I had the chance to meet her. I was in high school, and she was in her 80s at that time. Spent her whole life driving a little pickup truck around, visiting children, sharing the gospel, doing discipleship stuff in a very uh, needy place on the Navajo reservation. Incredible what she did with her singleness. But far more typical, there's, there's stories like that, far more typical are all the different single Christians who are faithful in our churches, serving, giving, thinking of others in so many kind and generous ways. And a lot of people came to mind here, but I was thinking of a lady that Susie and I were actually talking about not too long ago, who when we were dating and engaged back in our college days, there was a single Christian woman. She, she was probably in her 30s or 40s at that time, and she would say that her husband was killed in Vietnam. There just weren't enough husbands to go around, and so God had given her singleness. And she was such a blessing to us. She encouraged us. She helped us in a lot of ways. She helped plan our wedding, helped organize our wedding, one of the most kind, Christian, Christ-oriented people we'd ever met. And we could go on and on with stories like that. And you probably know people like that in your life as well. And Paul's point being, singleness is a gift from God. It's an opportunity to serve the Lord in special ways. But also, Paul admits or says in verse 9, 
Singleness comes with certain obligations. It comes with a commitment to sexual abstinence. This is not singleness in the way that maybe some in our world might think of it, a chance to play the field, to sow your wild oats. This is singleness with an obligation to abstinence. And so Paul says, if you are single, it's a gift from God, but if you find, just being real here, Paul says, if you find that you face a lot of temptation, you're struggling with self-control, then Paul says in verse 9, you should get married, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so just because you're single today, and that's what God's given you today, does not mean that you must remain single forever. It's also good to get married. And if you want to get married, it's a good thing too. There's no shame in it. Nothing wrong with being single and wanting to be married. And especially, Paul says, if the alternative is burning with desire, struggling with temptations. Of course, like the woman I mentioned who says her husband died in Vietnam, no guarantee you'll find a spouse right away. If at all, you'll still have to figure out self-control. But marriage is a good thing to pursue if you so choose. So single, married, both gifts from God. Give thanks to God and commit yourself to being faithful to him in either situation. Okay, this now takes us to our third point. Faithfulness in marriage. Okay, now we get to the hard stuff. Okay, well, the easy stuff's out of the way, right? Here comes, here comes the hard things. Okay, so Paul says singleness, marriage, both gifts from God, both good things. Oh, by the way, if you're single now and you want to get married, that's good. Go for it. Why not? But what if you're married and want to be single? What about divorce? What about remarriage after divorce? Now, this is where Paul will say a number of things throughout this chapter. There are other passages in Scripture, too. This gets into some very hard things, like I've mentioned. And we've got just a handful of minutes to at least try to figure out what Paul is saying a little bit here in this passage. Again, there's so much more here. But Paul, basically here in this passage, is going to set forward two things here. He's going to give us a rule a rule about the permanence of marriage. And then he's going to give what we'll call an exception. An exception where the complexity and messiness of life leads to a reality where maybe the rule doesn't apply absolutely, if I can say it like that. So a rule and then an exception. Okay, so here's the rule, the big principle in verses 10 and 11. And this is, this is heavy. Okay, here's what he says. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now Paul says this command doesn't come from me. It comes from the Lord, which is Paul's way of saying, this is what the Lord Jesus himself taught his disciples. And if you go back and read Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus taught about marriage and divorce, where he was asked about this and taught about this, 
he says pretty much the same thing Paul says here. And so Paul's saying, I'm just repeating to you the words that came off the tongue of the Lord Jesus. And the charge, the command here is very straightforward. A wife should not separate from her husband. Separate here is just another word for divorce. They didn't understand back in that day. There's not a difference between separation and divorce like we might have today. This is divorce, he's saying. A wife should not divorce her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. Full stop, Paul says. No divorce. Marriage is permanent. It really is until death do you part, and that's that. And in fact, Paul even tacks on here. If a wife, or also presumably if a husband, has divorced their spouse, here are your options, Paul says. Stay unmarried or reconcile to your spouse. Again, that's it, full stop, period, Paul says. It's a clear teaching, very straightforward. You're a Christian, you're following Christ, you're married, no divorce. That's it. Oopsie, I, I did get a divorce. Okay, go reconcile with your spouse. If that's not going to work out, stay single. That's what Paul says. Now that comes at us, and I say that's a heavy teaching because immediately we know this is so hard because life is so messy. And we immediately begin thinking, at least I do, about all of the messy situations in life. What about adultery, though? What about abuse? What about a violent husband? What about a wife who's strung out on drugs? What about abandonment? Paul doesn't address all the possible situations here. But we know, if you go back and read Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives a very similar teaching but it's not exactly the same because Jesus also adds in a possible exception, except when there's adultery, Jesus tacks in in Matthew chapter 19. There's an exception, whatever we make of the exception, Matthew 19. And here in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul goes on to himself describe, now let's talk about, here's the rule he just gave, now let's talk about a difficult situation. And how does this actually apply in a challenging situation? And this is where, again, Paul's tone here is, is so important, where Paul is, he is so aware now that for many of us as Christians, we find ourselves in really difficult circumstances. And we're trying to figure out what's the best way to apply these teachings in my circumstance. And so Paul says, here's, Here's a challenging circumstance some of you are facing in the church in Corinth. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, this is no longer quoting the teachings of the Lord Jesus, but it's still the Apostle Paul writing in Scripture. It's still authoritative. But he says, if any brother, a Christian, has a wife who is an unbeliever, not a Christian, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Here's a specific situation now, a case study. One spouse is a Christian, the other spouse is not. Now Paul will later say in 2 Corinthians, Christians should not yoke themselves with unchristians. If you're a Christian looking to get married, don't marry an unbeliever, 
But here's a situation where they were already married when one of them has come to Christ and the other has not. And Paul says you should, in that situation, remain married. And he explains in verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, here's one of those verses that, what on earth does Paul mean by that? Here's a challenging verse to interpret. But here's, reading between the lines, here's perhaps what these Christians in Corinth were thinking, what their logic was. They're looking at this situation of a mixed marriage where their spouse is not a believer, not following Christ now, but they are. And they're looking back into the Old Testament. And there are some places in the Old Testament, books like Ezra and Nehemiah, where God said to the Israelites that they needed to divorce their foreign wives who were worshiping other gods. You've married a foreign wife. They're worshiping other gods. God says, divorce them, put them away, and be faithful to me. Should Christians do the same? Or what about those clean and unclean laws back in the Old Testament that have come up a couple times in these messages in 1 Corinthians, where if you're an Israelite and you want to go into the temple, you need to be clean, but if you've come into contact with something that is unclean, it's defiled you, and you can't go in the temple unless you're first cleansed. So you have a Christian who is clean, married to an unbeliever who is unclean. Does the unclean unbeliever make the Christian unclean and defile them? Especially if they have sexual relations together, even within their marriage? And Paul's response to this is to say that in this situation, where the unbeliever agrees and is willing to stay married to you, Paul says, the permanence of marriage applies. Don't seek a divorce. Stay married. Seek to be the best possible spouse you can be as a Christian in this environment. And in fact, Paul says, your faithfulness, your faith and trust in Christ will be have a cleansing effect, perhaps, will make them holy. In other words, their uncleanness is not going to defile you but Lord willing, you'll have an influence on them and perhaps, perhaps God will even use you to bring your spouse, your kids to saving faith as well. So in this situation, Paul says, stay married. It is a difficult situation. It is messy. Things don't always work out the way we want them to, but stay married. But then he adds on in verse 15, but, now verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? What if the unbelieving spouse decides they're done? They want to get a divorce. They're not under the command of the Lord Jesus to remain married. They're ready to walk away. So now what does the Christian spouse do? Who is commanded not to get a divorce? And here, I don't know if you can sense this. I at least, I, 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 think, I, I sense in this text that Paul is very compassionate to the situation. Very understanding. Very practical. 
And he realizes at the end of the day, even as Christians, there's only so much you can do to hold a marriage together when the unbelieving spouse leaves. And at some point, fighting for your spouse to stay, fighting for your marriage is actually not peaceful anymore. And Paul brings in this other this other consideration that God has called us to peace in verse 15. And being peaceful, Paul says here, being faithful to Christ may mean letting that spouse go. And in such a situation, Paul says, you're not enslaved. You're not bound in such a situation. Their salvation is not determined by you holding on to that marriage. How do you even know whether that would even happen? And so let them go. So I put all that together and we have a rule from Paul. Straightforward, clear, direct, no divorce, stay married, period. And then we have an exception. Well, if your spouse is not a believer and leaves, let them go. You're not bound by the rule in that situation. So a rule and an exception. And this is where it gets challenging for us in how do we then apply that to our own lives? Here's where we need so much wisdom as Christians. Because again, life is messy. Things get complicated. And so how do we know? When do we apply the rule and say, hey, you need to stay married and stay faithful? Or when is there some kind of exception that says, you know what, in this circumstance, maybe that rule doesn't apply in quite the same way. I don't know what your experience is with this. I'll give you just a couple thoughts here, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. But many times I have encountered Christians, and you have the rule and the exception, many times I've encountered Christians who point to the exceptions to justify why they are okay in divorcing their spouse. They're in some kind of hard marriage, things are messy, and the more in some situations, not always, but in some situations, the more I listen to them and try to understand what's going on, the more it starts to seem like what you really want is to just get out of the marriage. Marriage is hard. People around you in the world, they would all have gotten a divorce by now. It seems like maybe you should get a divorce. But at the end of the day, it really seems like, you know, I think the rule applies here, not the exception. And in trying to argue for the exception, you're trying to force that square peg into a round hole. When perhaps what you really need to hear is that God calls you to be faithful to your spouse, to work on yourself as a Christian. How can you be a better, more Christ-honoring spouse, more self-giving like Paul describes, more forgiving to humble yourself, to serve your spouse, and so on, and to be faithful even when it's hard. Just yesterday, I was at the funeral for my grandfather. Some of you knew him. He was nearly 100 years old when he died a few weeks ago. 
And one of the things that I and many others in our family and who knew him, respect for him, respected about him as much as anything else is that he was faithfully married to my grandmother for 63 years until she died. And for many of those years, those who knew them well, for many of those years, we know that for about 30 years, the last 30 years of their marriage, maybe even longer, my grandmother was mentally unhealthy. She had deep depression that was debilitating for her. It kept her from functioning in life. She couldn't do much of anything for the last 30 years or so of her life. It was a very hard situation. And he remained faithful to her day after day, year after year. He looked at the rule. I've been a covenant with her. God calls me to be faithful in sickness and in health. And the exceptions don't apply as much as perhaps there were days when he wished perhaps that they would have. And sometimes we need other Christians to come alongside us and to tell us the hard things. I, I love you. I'm here to walk with you, to help you in your marriage. I understand how hard it is. But by the grace of God, with all the kindness we can muster, you need to know divorce is not an option for you. God calls you to remain faithful and to stay married, and to learn and to grow and to endure. And so we have to be careful about looking for exceptions, wanting to grab the exceptions when the rule applies. But then on the other hand, I've also known some situations where the rule gets applied in a blanket kind of way as if there never are exceptions. And this especially becomes a problem when there's a spouse who is being abused or taken advantage of, usually a wife who's being mistreated by her husband, who's being deserted perhaps, who's not being cared for by her husband. Maybe there's domestic violence involved where there's no mutuality in the marriage, where it's just her giving and him demanding, or sometimes the other way around. And there have been times when in these kinds of situations, the message that the wife hears, and the way that I'm framing it here, the wife hears from the church is the rule. No divorce, period. And even when she confides in a Christian friend or her pastor, hey, this is going on, and the response that's given, or at least the response she hears is, the wife should not divorce her husband, period. End of story. And then she'll return, seek to be a better wife, to be more self-giving, more submissive to her husband's authority, taking even more of what he's dishing out. And in these kinds of situations, that's also not quite faithful to what the Bible says. Because again, Paul here, scripture acknowledges life is messy. Our world is broken. There is sin. There are hearts that are hard. And there are times when good Christian counsel, wise counsel says, maybe it's time to make a break here. And we as Christians of the church, we're not here to shame you for that. We're here to help you through that very painful process. So how do we know the rules apply here? The rule or an exception? 
our hearts, our own hearts can deceive us, especially when we are the ones in that messy situation. This is why we need a church family around us. This is why we need wise Christians around us who can help us to see our own situation, to think through scripture properly so we can find the best path forward to honor Christ. Well, so much more that could and perhaps should be said. Like I said at the beginning, this is a hard passage, hard to interpret, hard to apply. But aren't we thankful to God for his grace, for his goodness to us? God has given two gifts here in this passage, the gift of marriage, the gift of singleness, both good gifts from him. And so we give thanks to God for his gifts. He's given us one another in this church. And so we thank God for one another and for the help that we have even here in this church among ourselves. When I am that person in the messy situation, that there are people here I can reach out to to find wise counsel and to find help. And so if that's you today, I'd encourage you to reach out to me. If you need that kind of help, that kind of counsel, whether it comes from me or whether I connect you to someone else, we'll find you the help and counsel you need. And let's seek all of us, whether we're single or married, to be faithful to God and how we use his gifts that he has given us, singleness or marriage, to serve and to honor him from this day forward. Amen. This has been a podcast from Grace Church of Mabton. For more information, visit our website at mabtongbc.org.